Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Welcome to our latest review show. This month, our reviews include Malcolm and Marie, Soul and Mank. Before that, Jeff returns with his stupid quiz. Uh, excuse me, how many did you get right last month, Neil? None. Surely. I'm proud of it. <laughs> After the reviews, we have Darren's Dash. This month's selection includes Space Sweepers and Graham's favourite, Greenland. It was my favourite. I did enjoy it. Spoiler alert. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. It may not have escaped your notice that the James Bond film has been postponed once again. Now, this has led to some very funny visual jokes about a very old Daniel Craig attending the premiere with a Zimmer frame. And it got me to thinking, shouldn't we actually go for an older James Bond? Society at the moment is far too ageist. We are brains, not brawn. And with my politically correct cape on, I will fight to put this right. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be running a poll. Who should play the next James Bond from one of the three at the Flicks team? Could it be the oldest, Graham, or the youngest, Jeff? Neil. Watch out. Jeez, <laughs> oh, you've got to be careful, haven't you? Yeah, watch, yeah. <laughs> watch out for us on Facebook and Twitter. Graham might be back from his trip to Cancun. Who knows? Uh, thank you, Graham Hills, for organising this and being my coach. You shaken or stirred yet, Graham? Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Based with that, Jeff, you'll get my vote. Uh, you've been editing the, the document again. Thanks, Jeff. Hi, my name is Neil, and I will always support vote for Graham because I noticed that. You changed it. <laughs> uh, hi, my name's Phil. You can find out more about my film tastes via my blog at philthebearblog at wordpress.com. Hi, my name is Darren, and I like everything from sci-fi to musicals, Hong Kong gangster films to biopics, and I have a taste for cheap B-movies. You can find out more about my movie tastes at halfguarded.com. Um, just before we go on, I, I've got to say to Phil and Darren, I hope you don't feel excluded in the James Bond thing, but I'm sorry, you're just too young. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually, I'm probably around the age of the the average sort of James Bond, aren't I? Yeah, I'm perfect then, apart from being slightly overweight and not very uh, dashing. <laughs> <laughs> Works for Neil, <laughs> but at least. Neil has a vodka martini when he gets up at first thing in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the only way I can. <laughs> Before we continue with the show, we have a little surprise and bonus for you. Jeff's quiz is neither a surprise nor a bonus, Graham. You're just encouraging him. No, it's not the quiz. That, unfortunately, is coming along shortly. This is a real bonus. Recently, Jeff and I chatted with Val Thomas of the Retro Podcast Massacre for a show coming at Easter. Val lives in New Zealand, and we asked him what cinema life was like there with no lockdown. Here is what Val said. We are hearing rumours over here in the UK, and indeed for our listeners in America, that life is almost normal in New Zealand, and, and there are such things as cinemas. Is this true? Uh, I, I have heard tell of these wondrous places uh, where they serve... <laughs> 
such things as, as popcorn, I believe it's called. The unfortunate thing is that, obviously, because so many cinema releases have been held back, there's, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, um, there's F all on. Uh, Jeff, Jeff and Graham. There's, there is beggar all to see, uh, he said, trying not to swear. We did go and see Wonder Woman over Christmas at the cinema. And it, and it was really nice. It's that smell of popcorn and the crowds around you. Oh. They're excited. And the trailers. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, um, life is at the moment pretty normal. The borders are still closed. It's really hard to get into the country. But yeah, apart from the occasional outbreak, things are pretty normal here. And uh, and I hope things will return to normal for you very soon. Now I'm depressed. So depressed, in fact, I don't care about Jeff and his quiz. You may not care, Neil, but I do. <laughs> Last <laughs> month, dear. we introduced the challenge of the team quiz. And quite frankly, the results were pathetic. <laughs> My brother contacted me after the show, Ed, with most of the correct answers. Only one proved elusive to him and to other listeners that uh, decided to let us know what they thought. So to put you all out of your misery, here are the answers. Who wrote the music to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? That was James Horner. The shark in Jaws was nicknamed Bruce. Why? In honour of Bruce Raymer, Spielberg's lawyer. Uh, the one question you did get right was the Cloud Atlas, but I think that was more by just wearing me down by shouting numbers at me. And the one nobody got right, not even my brother, which was disappointing, the disco in the fantastic 1978 movie, Thank God It's Friday, is called The Zoo. Will our Mission Impossible team fare better this month? Let's put them in socially distanced mastermind shares. Careful, guys, because if you're not, Neil will be in your lap. Here are, the, here are the four questions. Question one. In the Mad Max films, what is the surname of the Mad Max character? Ritowski or something? Oh, that's, that's close enough. Um, yes, yes. Hey. Phil gets it. Rocketansky. So Phil's one up already. Question two. Which famous comedian wrote the script for the 1965 sex comedy What's new, Pussycat? Woody Allen. Yes, yes. Question three. Writer Jeffrey Lieber was tasked with turning the hit Tom Hanks movie Castaway into a TV series. What was the name of the series that eventually came from that idea? Lost. Yes, it was Lost. Yes, yes. Yay. Yep. Mm. So, right, final question. The cast included Richard Keel, Scatman Crothers, Patrick McGowan, and Gene Wilder. What was the film? Blazing Saddles. Richard Keel, Scatman Crothers, Patrick McGowan, and Gene Wilder. Mean Machine? Silent Movie? Uh, nope, that's too Stur- right. Stir Crazy? One nope, Flew Over nope. the Cookie's Nest? No, no, no. So that's a draw. That's actually really good. So I think I'll... Now go back to the movie reviews. I'm out of here, bye. And our first review of the year is Mank. Mank? It's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. 
Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> David Fincher's first feature film since 2014 is currently showing on Netflix. Based on his father Jack's script, it's the story of the creation of the script for Citizen Kane. Alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, played by Gary Oldman, is hired by first-time filmmaker Orson Welles to develop a screenplay about the fictional mogul Charles Foster Kane. Is Kane too closely related to the real-life William Randolph Hearst, played by the excellent Charles Dance, a man who Mank has a troubled history with. Darren, do you think Mank will be remembered as long as Citizen Kane? I, I very much doubt it. I doubt anything is made today is going to be remembered as uh, long as Citizen Kane. And unfortunately, due to the fact that Netflix just let everything that they have um, disappear into a big, massive well, we probably won't remember Mank in a uh, year's time if you've not already seen it. I, I was actually really looking forward to this film because uh, I'm a really big fan of the workings of Hollywood, especially during the, the Golden Age, and, and I'm really fascinated by Citizen Kane as well. It's not a film I I would say is one of my favourites, but just by inf- how influential it is a film I'm really interested in. So I was really looking forward to that. And I have to say, I, I, I was sadly uh, disappointed with it. There was a lot I actually really did enjoy. I thought the film looked great. Period sets were wonderful. The costumes and everything were really luscious. It, it, it felt sort of like, you know, really as if it was recreating the Golden Age style and look of a movie. I thought it looked really luscious. And I did actually enjoy all the flashback scenes, which were taking you back to, to how Hollywood worked and all the shenanigans and everything. All of that I found really, really interesting. My problem with it was with, actually with the main story in the, in the present with the Mankovich when it was, actually came to him writing the play. I, I just found this part of it like really, really tedious and, and maudlin. Um, I couldn't really get in, into these moments. And there were a lot of really dialogue-heavy scenes that just absolutely laboured and there was nothing really interesting that I could, that I could that, you know, keep my attention with. There was very little of Citizen Kane in there and, and actually you know what, what the sort of story was i think if you actually came into this film and not having seen citizen kane i, I think you would basically come out of this with hardly any, any more sort of idea than what you came in with it this is this is a weird film for me because i actually watched it twice because after i um watched it i actually read up on, on it and so i watched it again because i sort of i got more what it was was going for the fact that mankovich was basing citizen kane on the charles dance uh, character and, and everything even so there were just so many scenes that just sort of labored for, for me I, I i you know i have to say I, I was disappointed i needed more about citizen kane rather than just you know you know mankovich um, uh, uh, himself but you know so i, I was kind of like 50-50 on this movie to be honest uh, I think you pick up an interesting point that many people are going to talk about on this is that if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, you have not got a clue. Yeah, it's a difficult one. It's on BBC iPlayer at the moment. So if you're in the UK okay. and want to watch Mank, I would I would certainly suggest you watch Citizen Kane first. Phil? I half agree with one of Darren's points. <laughs> I'll start by saying I, I put Mank as my fifth favourite film of last year. So I'm going to be gushing over it to some extent. 
Um, but the bit that I do agree with Darren on is that this film is going to be really divisive because if you know or care little about Citizen Kane, I really can't imagine you enjoying this at all. Um, I watched it with my wife and she didn't even make it to the 30 minute mark. So <laughs> she just said it wasn't for her and walked out and I carried on and enjoyed it. And Did, did she say why it wasn't for her? Um, so we discussed it afterwards and she just was basically, don't have a clue what they're talking about. Nothing's happening. It's slow. Didn't interest her in any way, shape or form. And I think that's because this is the sort of film I think that if you really love Citizen Kane and you know a lot about it, then there's a lot in there for you. And if you don't, it's um, about a guy who's an alcoholic trying to write a script. I think it's a huge caveat to put into it, but I loved it. So for me, there's lots of things to like about it. So it's clearly a really personal film for David Fincher. It's written by his late father. He's spoken at great length about his painful experiences with studio interference on his first film, which was Alien 3. So the entire film is a passion project for him. And you can see that in every shot. The entire film is shot and stylized like Citizen Kane. So it's got beautiful black and white images. All the script and the speech patterns is about matching the era. So the people don't speak how, you know, you would expect people to speak nowadays. They speak like a 1940s film, you know, would be uh, shot. And quite a lot of the shots mimic famous scenes from Citizen Kane. And, I, you know, it's one of those things where every time one of those happens, it's kind of like a a movie geek dream. And even the structure of the film where it uses flashbacks to tell the story is exactly the same structure that Citizen Kane uses. There are great performances in there. Gary Oldman is amazing, and it's a far better performance than the one that won him an Oscar for Churchill. And Amanda Seyfried steals the film in the best performance I think I've ever seen her give. And then it has cameos from Charles Dance, as William Randolph Hearst and Tom Burke as uh, Orson Welles, and they give really brilliant performances. Yeah, I was um, going to say, uh, say on Tom Burke there, I thought he was dubbed, and it was actually him talking. Really? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that he is also... I can't remember which way around it is. He, I think he's about 10 or 15 years older than what Kane was at the time. And again, you know, the, his physical performance as well as his speech pattern... I thought was really, really great and matches all the sort of interviews and and things that I've seen of um, Orson Welles. It's also got a really fantastic score, and I'm sure, or at least I hope, uh, Jeff will talk about that because he knows much more about film music than I do. Um, It it is brilliant. Pardon? It is brilliant. Yeah, so it's by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who are now constant collaborators with Fincher. I think they've been with him since The Social Network. And it's also not a rose-tinted view of Hollywood it really delves into the grubby nature of how films were made and um, how people behaved. I thought it was an instant classic, and I think that we should really thank Netflix for giving David Fincher free reign because I'm not sure that he could have made a black-and-white movie with 1940s speech patterns about an old film like with a big budget with any other sort of studio. That's true. He nearly got it made in 1998, but they pulled out when they realised he was serious about making it in black and white. Yeah, so I loved it. Mm. Excellent. Glowing review there. Neil? 
Ah, yeah, well, I watched Citizen Kane first just to make sure I knew uh, I could remember everything. And this is a great story. It works because of its technical brilliance as much as the outstanding cast and because it doesn't concentrate too hard on the Citizen Kane writing credits mentioned, of course. But there's far too much written about uh, that already. Rather, it gives a picture of 1930s Hollywood, MGM studio and the hierarchy within it and the politics of the day. With a brilliant mind of Mank, Fincher then provides a sharp and poignant view of the corruption and otherworldly life of California. I thought it was superb. The technical brilliance, and, and this is, uh, I just love the black and white, by the way. It starts with Fincher and, and cinematographer Eric Messerschmidt, who made sure not to copy Citizen Chain, although there are scenes copied. It's more of an echo. They filmed Mank in 8K and then degraded it to look like the films of the 1930s. Uh, which is some feat. And then they added artifacts. There's a cigarette burn here and a scratch there. Mm. And then like Knives Out, yes. um, yeah. where um, Knives Out, the cinematographer, wrote an algorithm. So when the character is in front of bright light, in film gives an artifact. It gives a sort of halo effect around them. And this the, the guy on uh, Knives Out wrote uh, an algorithm to produce that in digital film when of course it's um redone on this one it's absolutely fantastic the levels they went to are really unbelievable even apparently i spending ages finding the right anamorphic lens for the right uh, for the exact look they wanted and the main character spends most of the time in bed i mean can we imagine anybody other than gary oldman doing that i mean surely another oscar Cast generally are outstanding. Amanda Seyfried is is superb, and as Phil said she steals scenes. And with her and Gary Oldman together, this adds another dimension. Everything works, and Oldman works extremely well. The flashbacks, like in Citizen Kane, keep you interested, and Mank is such a character. They engage my attention throughout. Uh, make sure you understand some of the history and, and Citizen Kane itself first is the recommendation. I loved it. Well, what must be a first for me, compared to you, Phil, is my wife actually sat all the way through it. A lot of what you said here is, is true. I can't imagine getting much out of this film if you haven't seen Citizen Kane. It's mm. You need to see it. The black and white is astonishing, and thank you very much for the description of the degrading. Every shot is almost like you, you could have it in a picture and on your wall. It's mm. that good. At the heart of this film is a conceit. Mankiewicz did not write the screenplay in that way. It was a collaboration, and it's been proven by uh, some of the artefacts of Kane itself, which I think are in a Hollywood museum. I'm sure if a listener's listening to that, and I've got that wrong, they'll tell me. There were huge amounts of notations from Wells and changes made. So. It was a, a, a lot more. Um, I mean, he does get a bit of a kicking, doesn't he? But he's he did direct and star in it, so he was uh, he was still the doing most of the work. I mean, it starts off, and, the, and I do like you, it. Throws in references to Hearts of Darkness, which was going to be his film for RKO, and they pulled the plug on that and allowed him to do Kane instead because it was cheaper. Um, the William Randolph Hearst. Uh, thing you know it's again really really well done and i like the fake news that they brought into it 
and the way all that political campaign from 1934-35 was shown. And by the way, anybody noticed that political campaign and the guy they were discrediting was the chap who went on to write the book of There Will Be Blood. Yeah, I did notice that, yeah. Ah. yeah. So there you go. It is, and again, I agree that Amanda Seyfried, not an actress as particularly sort of, you know, I've noticed before. But you loved her in, um, she was in Mamma Mia. You loved her in that, didn't you, Jeff? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's your favourite. I remember you saying. Absolutely. Yeah. And the sequel. But I want to just pick up on a point because otherwise I'll just be reiterating what everybody else has said other than Darren. I want to pick up on the the score and what what Phil was saying about it. And what was clever about the score is in some ways it took some of the thematic construction that Bernard Herrmann did for Citizen Kane, almost took it down a notch into psycho territory that Herrmann did. So it has a really disquieting effect for a lot of it but it's so rich and so textured. It is an incredible score. People aren't talking enough about it, and I hope that they do, and I hope come Oscar time that does win an award because it deserves to. Overall, love the film. If you have a love of cinema, then quite simply, you have to see this. But like everybody else, I would say, go watch Citizen Kane first. Or, as unlike our next reviewer, you start watching this, realise you need to stop it, and go watch <laughs> Citizen Kane. I will now hand over to Graham. Yeah, that was that. That was my line. Yes. So um, I really, really enjoyed this. I mean, Citizen Kane's origin story, to put it in a modern context, and I love the line: "Right hard, aim low." Um, <laughs> it was it was so good that I started watching it, and then I thought. You know, it's 45 years since I watched Citizen Kane. I cannot remember any of it. So I stopped it, Well, went and watched Citizen Kane, and then came back the next night and watched it all again. It's a perfect Friday evening, relaxing movie for for movie nerds that I watched on a Friday and finished on a Saturday. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, I just reiterate every, what everybody said. The color was fantastic. The framing was from the Stanley Kubrick Wes Anderson School of Cinematography. The framing was just wonderful and absolutely captivating. Gary Oldman was incredible. You know, two hours of dialogue lay, lying flat on his back most of the time. Charles Dance, I thought that was a superb performance. That unbelievable, detached, cold arrogance and aloofness was just wonderful. It's a film nuts delight. It really is, and I'm, I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> I just Great. So much. Graham, that praise for Charles Dance wouldn't be because you once had a flight back with him sitting next to him on the way, would it? I might be. Him yeah. and I, Big Buds, Big Buds got on yeah. well, you know, and uh, he, he just flown out to Hollywood. And I said to him, oh, what are they offering you a new role? He said, oh, it's they want some Brit to be a you know, a villain again, as usual, and they think I'd make a good villain. Is it and he does. No, it was. He was flying. He was flying back from uh, doing an audition for uh, Game of Thrones. Okay. Mm. We all agreed, other than Darren, who was lukewarm, but generally really good. So thanks, guys, for your thoughts on Mank. Let's talk about a story which was developed at the same time as Citizen Kane. Noel Coward's Blythe Spirit. What seems to be the trouble, old chap? 
I've been commissioned to adapt my novel for the screen. But the words have dried up. I need divine intervention. I'd like you to conduct a seance at my home. This Thursday. Oh, is that you, Maya? My spirit guide. She was Tutankhamun's wet nurse. I do hope she's not still lactating. <laughs> is there anyone on the other side that you think of? Elvira, his dead ex-wife. Elvira? Hello? You're dead. It's not a coincidence that you haven't published a word since my demise. Finish the first act of my screenplay. Elvira, help me. Oh, something took place. I can feel it in my base chakra. Probably trapped wind. Noel Coward wrote the original play of Blythe Spirit back in 1941. A few years later, it was famously filmed by David Lean in 1945. This latest film version sets the events in 1937 and stars Dan Stevens as writer Charles Condamine. Charles is struggling with his latest screenplay. He wants to add a spiritualist as a character, but he can't get it to work. So he invites a medium to perform a seance at his house with his wife, Ruth, played by Isla Fisher, and friends in attendance. The seance goes wrong, or should we say right, depending on your point of view, because the veil is thin, as Madame Cecily, played by Judy Dench, brings back the spirit of Charles's first wife, Elvira, played by Leslie Mann a spirit only he can see and interact with. Phil, were you spirited away by this latest version of Blythe Spirit? Well, let's just say this is more of a sort of film you come across on a Sunday evening and you're too tired to truly engage with anything and you can happily just pass the time to this without much effort. I found the main plot to be really scattershot and it bounces around between fraudulent mediums, troubled marriages, writer's block. And also, Ruth and Alvira's attitude to their husband changes at the drop of a hat just to suit the joke that they're trying to land at that particular moment in time in the film. It's not laugh-out-loud funny, but it's amiable enough. I smiled most of the way through. I really like the period settings and the costumes. I like Dan Stevens' histrionics. Um, I think Leslie Mann and Isla Fisher were the standouts. But I thought the whole thing was generally a bit unfocused. There aren't any killer jokes. And Judy Dench, I thought, was uncharacteristically flat and pretty awful. As Darren was with Mank, um, I would say I was lukewarm on this one. Okay, Graham. Phil said this was a Sunday evening film. I'd put it Sunday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I thought Judy Dench started off really well and then went very, very flat. And so did... Leslie Mann. When she first appeared, she was very amusing and charming and funny. Um, however, the initial setup is not delivered at any, to any level of satisfaction as you go through the film. And this just seems to, on, in the third act, it just falls off a cliff and everybody seems to, to change the character they're playing. It was terrible. I, I really dislike this. The, the set director and the location manager, however, are on fire. Their love of all things art. Deco is apparent in every scene from the, the main house to the cocktail bar at the Savoy. It just shouts 1920s. It's a shame the wardrobe department were not completely on the same page, but never mind. And the plot. Oh, God, it's terrible. And the script from screenwriter Piers Ashworth just seems to have missed the point of Coward's original. The charm, warmth, fun are all missing. Replaced by mean-spirited action with no clear reasoning, people changing their minds all the time. The whole movie starts to just drift away from me. 
the husband and wife team very shallow and the only thing that I can say is that Coward would have said too many darlings, darling. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not liking this one, Neil. Fast and British fast especially needs to be funny and engaging and I can't watch The Office for more than a few minutes, for example, and there's a reason it's nearly died out. Any adaptation of Blythe Spirit needs to compete with the original, as, as Jeff said at the top. The adaptation by David Lean, starring Rex Harrison and Dave Margaret Rutherford, and a couple of TV versions. Sadly, this one compares unfavorably to all of them. There's a good cast, including Judy Dench, for goodness sake. The overall films are kind of damp squib. They try to update the jokes and add to the original play, and it all falls well short. And in the Battle of the Dames, Margaret Rutherford wins hands down. And what was Judy Dench thinking? Sky yeah. straight to satellite film. And I had to buy Sky Cinema as well to watch it. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I do blame the person that picked this film, personally. But... Yeah. It was you, Jeff. Yeah. yeah, I know. So do we, Jeff. <laughs> Darren, you must have found something good in it. Oh, God. I mean, this film started with a guy at a typewriter not knowing what to write. <laughs> and that's how I felt when, when I came to actually write my notes for this film because it was just, it was just such a nothing film. It was like just like a, a little BBC sort of short little film. But, you know, it was just so sort of like, you know, uninteresting. Okay, there were a couple of things in there that are sort of score points for me. One of them is that there's a reference to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance King. And another one is that the end was kind of a little bit of a uh, Thelma and Louise type gag as they sort of drove off into the sunset into a big Yeah, that was brilliant. I, I, that, that was good. And and I think Leslie Mann was, um, you know, it was really fun in it as well. But it was just all, it was just sort of so slow and all over the place. I mean, one minute we had like a really interesting story about a guy who was a fraud and who was trying to get the uh, the ghost of his wife to uh, to pretty much write his story for him because he didn't have the talent to do it. But then he would switch from that to like a little bit of a sex romp comedy. It was just all over the place. I, I, I got, This film felt like it was trying to be like really charming and quirky and, and wonderfully English. It just irritated me for the, for the majority of the film. I just, um, yeah, I just, I just could not, Get get into this at all, and, and I was really, you know, glad when it was over. And I sort of like, you know, Judy Dench, like, you know, she's a national treasure, bless you. But and she and she she was doing, you know, she she did fine in in this. It just didn't work for me at all. Okay, well, uh, I'm glad you're sitting on the fence, Darren. Um, <laughs> but this film is a reason to be grateful for COVID, and. <laughs> The the reason I say that is, had COVID not happened, this film would have actually opened in British cinemas on Boxing Day. So, in fact, COVID saved Christmas rather than destroyed it. So, now, even though I picked it, I will admit I'm not a fan of British farce. I hate it. It's just over the top. Dan Stevens overacts like mad. I mean, Dan, you're a good lad, mate, but don't do comedy. Stay away from it. I mean, you were bad enough in Legion, and that was awful. So it's not funny. The setup isn't funny. I didn't laugh once. I, I smiled once, and Darren picked up on that point. The Thelma and Louise gag was really good. The ladies are very nice. Isla Fisher and Leslie Mann, great performances. There's a pathetic level of political correctness here that isn't in the original. 
It's mean-spirited. We don't need it. As for Judy Dench, yeah, I'm sorry. It's not her finest hour. And as for director Edward Hall, well, you can't handle this material. And I'd be worried about the ghost of Noel Coward coming back to haunt him for this abortion. And this is still not the worst film I've seen this month. Well, that is our take on Blythe Spirit. Keeping the afterlife theme going, let's talk about Soul. What the... What is this place? What's your name, honey? Uh, I'm Joe. I teach middle school band. Howdy, go for it! Today started out as the best day of my life. Back here tonight, first show's at 7. Yes! Woohoo! You know what that's gonna say? Joe Gardner! <laughs> I did it! I got the gig! No, it's the great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks, and interests before they go to Earth. Meet 22. I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this. I don't want to. Mm, this weird. What is it? 151,000 souls go into the great beyond every day, and I count every single one of them. The count's off. Huh. The latest animated feature from Pixar, which, because of COVID, bypassed cinemas going straight to Disney+. Plus. Thanks again, COVID. Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, is a music teacher who never got his big break in the jazz world. That is, until today. Fate, however, is not always kind, and Joe meets with a tragic and fatal accident. The next thing he knows, his soul is on the stairway to heaven, heading to the great beyond. Desperate to get back, Joe falls off the stairway, ending up in the great before, where souls prepare for life. Here Joe embarks on the greatest adventure of all. Graham, as those great sages of Abba once sang, did this movie fill a hole in your soul? God, I can't believe you wrote that, Jeff. <laughs> That's one Jeff definitely wrote, yeah. I just thought it was a wonderful, wonderful return to form for Pixar. It's a real shame that I didn't get to see this movie in the cinema. I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen. Watching it on the TV just really compressed it to a level, made it quite hard to watch. I mean, it was still a fantastic watch. The colours were exceptional. The ray tracing in the streets of New York was just groundbreaking yet again from Pixar. I loved the central character. I also loved all of the genius things they did with the animation. It went from completely spectacular 3D computer-generated animation down to sort of line drawings at one point. It was just a tour de force, and I've watched it a couple of times since. It was such an uplifting film, and it really cheered me up no end. I just really loved it. I just hope they bring it back at some stage in the future so I can see it on a big screen, because I loved it. And I loved the music as well. I thought the fantastic uh, music yet again. And you know the composers were, don't you? Yep. Trent Reznor again, and he was working with a jazz musician whose name's just completely slipped out of my head. They yeah. used a whole load of stuff from jazz clubs, didn't they? Yeah. 
Okay, Darren, there's got to be a film here you like. Is this the one? <laughs> yeah, this was a late addition to my uh, top 10 for uh, films of uh, 2020. I-, I-, I thought this was great. I mean, it took a, a really daring and complicated concept about the afterlife of, of where souls end, you know, where the, where the, you know, the beginning, how they get to earth and everything. But it really took its time showing you how that realm worked. And when we got that um, established and made that sort of world really interesting, it used that to tell a really heartfelt story. This, to me, felt like uh, almost a spiritual sequel to Inside Out, whereas that film was about sort of, you know, becoming a child and going into your teenager. This was about life as an adult and how you choose how to, um, you know, the balance in your life about following your dreams, but also sort of living, you know, the everyday life of an adult. And also, you know, finding what is going to make you happy in life. And also about making your mark and, and just as important, the legacy that you leave behind on you. Whether you're a jazz fan or not, I think there is something really romantic about you know the jazz singer. I think it's because it's not like a popular form of music. It's something which is very much about performing live and in front of a small crowd. I, I thought this was absolutely uh, you know wonderful. Basically, is what Pixar does. It has sort of like a really good concept, but tells a very human story about it. You, you make a, a really good point there that I want to come back to in a moment. I mean. What I would say on Soul is there was a time at the beginning of the century, first decade, when a new Pixar film would be an event. You know, it would blow you away with its imagination and visuals. They weren't just for kids. There was a hell of a lot of philosophy in them. You know, you look at Finding Nemo and Ratatouille as two examples of just masterclass storytelling that works on so many levels. And I think the first act of Soul touches on that as well and it's interesting that's where the point that darren's just made comes in it's an animated film you would think it would be designed for the whole family but it uses jazz as its idiom of music which is not something that makes a great deal of connection and i would also say that soul in that first part looks at a character dying now you know if you look at the great disney films outside of bambi it wasn't something that they would particularly like to touch on so the fact that soul hits that head on kills the character in the first act uh, is remarkable. It's an interesting one to explain to the kids when you're watching it. Up has a character dying in the first mm-hmm. act. Yeah. But up would be from that first decade of great Pixar films. You're Since Toy Story 3, there's only been one mm. uh, that's been absolutely brilliant on that regard, and that's Inside Out. This first act in this film is just astonishing and i love the reference to a matter of life and death when he's going up the stairway yeah you know, all, all it needed was little statues on the side it, it had real flair at the adult themes and then as the film progressed i started getting a bit bored and i was trying to work out why i started to realize that it started to have a number of story conceits bit of a spoiler alert for anybody listening just jump ahead about a minute the fact is he's not really dead He's being kept alive. And that works into the second half of the film. And you start to think, well, there isn't a great deal up to play here. Because in my mind at that point, I always thought, well, he is going to come back to life then. And it sort of cheapened it a little bit for me. But that said, it is a great film. There's a moment in the film as well where they just stop and look around. You know, the Ferris Bueller mantra. 
if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. It's a worthy message. Great voice cast. Um, although Graham Norton did piss me off. I've got to be honest. I mean, that took me out of the film as well. Visuals were stunning. First act, fantastic. Okay where it ended up, but predictable by that point. Just not superior Pixar. It doesn't rival, as Neil would say, up. Just didn't have that quality for me. Mm. But, yeah, overall, a great film. Neil. Visual, stunning Pixar entry that really struck a chord with me, sorry. Uh, Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey are excellent, as Joe and Tony too has mentioned before. The film works on a standard want-versus-need narrative structure. Sometimes the protagonist gets what they want by attending to his knees, like Groundhog Day, and the, sometimes the protagonist is happy with all his wants until he realises what he needs to do, Children and Men, which we, of course, reviewed a few months ago. Sold us something clever, though. Joe gets everything he's wanted, a chance at the big time, and finds that that doesn't change his life. Trent Reznor, who did the music with Atticus Ross, told director Pete Doctor about a time when he really wanted to do a stadium show and that it would somehow fix him. He did the show and then, well, just everyone leaves. They have lives. And he realised that it hadn't put everything in place for him. It was just a show. But the Pete Doctor then added scenes, we don't know, but the scenes such as the fish in the sea speech and the train journey set up earlier in the film when Joe associates the zombies on the train as his dissatisfaction in life are a clever way of reinforcing the argument, the message that getting everything you want doesn't bring happiness is fantastic. You have to attend to your needs to fuel the soul. It's a fantastic message. Whether it's targeting social media or not, I don't know. Where social media is full of people saying how wonderful their lives are. Sometimes we need to ignore the noise and stop and smell the low roses. I love this film, and we'll see it again. Perhaps one to put on when things aren't going well. Absolutely outstanding film. But as Jeff says, it's probably not as yeah. good as Up. So I talked about Mank making my uh, being my fifth favourite film of um, 2020 and Soul made it into my top 20 last year. I think it's another animated film from Pixar that's just really amazing. Everyone's mentioned it. It doesn't quite hit the heights of Inside Out. Um, and Darren said that this is really the spiritual successor of that. Um, but it is special nevertheless. Whilst it's quite a deep look at what a soul is or means, it ultimately is just a film asking us all to pay attention to all the moments of joy in the world that we may take for granted. And I do think that it works at both levels in terms of the adults and children to enjoy. I, I watched this um, with my family, I think on Christmas Day or Boxing Day, and my kids loved it. My wife and I loved it, and I think we got different things out of it. And I didn't get asked any um, difficult questions about death either, so... And they must have managed it you know, reasonably well. How old uh, are your children? <clears throat> 10 and 6. So technically it's phenomenal. The animation just seems to get better and better. Do you, do you ever find when you're watching an animated film, you just think it just can't get better than that? And then two or three years later, you'll watch a film and you just be like, it can't get better than that. Yeah. And I just, I, you know, like, so if you watch Toy Story, the, the original Toy Story, it just looks really dated and antiquated now. But at the time you thought it looked really great. And I, I find that animation is a weird thing like that, where every time there's a, ne a new step up, you just think it can't get better, but they always somehow manage it. Something about the fingers, wasn't it, was they managed to do the fingers on the uh, piano. It was absolutely magnificent watching all the fingers dancing around the piano. 
wonderful. Yeah, I, I thought the um, like the aerial views of New York were amazing. Um, I don't mm. know like how realistic they were. I, I imagine it, it sort of felt like they probably had aerial shots and were like replicating them and just adding their sort of own sort of pizzazz to it. Um, mm. And people have mentioned it. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross get a lot of mentions in this show because their score for Mank was amazing. Their score for This is Amazing. Yeah. Um, can they do all the scores for everything? Let's <laughs> mm. not push it. I'm, I'm a big Nine Inch Nails fan, so, you know, I'm Yeah, I'm yeah we got that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a heavenly discussion about Soul. We often wonder where yours went, Jeff. <laughs> Let's move on and talk about the romantic drama from Netflix. Malcolm and Marie. You are by far the most excruciating, difficult, stubbornly obnoxious woman I've ever met in my entire life. (laughs) I love the way you see the world, Marie. Mystery. The unknown. It's what supports the tension of a relationship. You're angry. No. The what-if factor. Marie. 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 What if... There's someone who loved them better. You know what, Malcolm? I feel like once you know someone is there for you and once you know they love you, you never actually think of them again. It's until you're about to lose someone that you finally pay attention. Well, what is it, Marie? What do you want? Really? Do you want to go there? Yes. Okay. I don't care. Hold on to me for dear life. Film director Malcolm Elliott, played by John David Washington, and his partner Marie, played by Zendaya, return home after a successful premiere of his latest movie. However, Malcolm has made a mistake at the showing, and that begins a night of anger and recrimination as their relationship unravels. A two-hander movie made in COVID restrictions. Neil, did this almost theatrical piece work for you? No. (laughs) John David Washington in the midst of a vitriolic diatribe is a sight to see Zendaya throws off a good girl Disney image and that's it instead of a millennial who's afraid of Virginia Woolf we get this meandering series of malicious virulent haranguing yes I use the thesaurus okay instead of a well written Tennessee Williams style of tale of anger pain and helplessness we get self-absorbed shouting on repeat like listening to jeff but yes the cinematography is gorgeous black and white 35 millimeter film by marcel rev and it's dynamic and sparse but where was the script sure we get details of sentai's backstory piece by piece but that aside i could have switched off after 30 minutes the worst part is that there's a good story in there but it's so obsessed with self-important invective, thanks to Soros, that it misses its mark, unfortunately. Um, where was the good story? Well, this idea that he had forgotten her name and there was he had created this film. It could have had something more. I don't know what they could have put in there, but it just sort of ended up as shouting stupid stuff at each other. Uh, I'm sorry, she was a druggie. He rescued her. Give her a nice house, all those clothes. You ought to be more. Oh, you start. I can't Phil. believe you went there. She. 
Essentially, this is about two narcissists spending a very long time arguing over which of them is the more needy or more jealous in the relationship. (laughs) Every time one argument fizzled out, I wondered how on earth they were going to keep the film going, but they somehow managed it. The fact that the couple just seemed to be in a really toxic relationship and the most prudent course of action would have just been for them to break up makes it really painful to watch. It's just argue, kiss, argue, kiss, except they hate each other, clearly. I, I, I mean, I don't know if anyone else saw that, but I just don't understand why we were supposed to care yeah. about two people that just weren't right for each other and just had a sort of toxic fight-kiss relationship. It was a bit mm-hmm. weird. So allegedly, the big controversial scene where Malcolm berates the female critic of the LA Times is a swipe at a critic who gave the director's last film a bad review. Um, So I think this is a massive backfire on the director's behalf because now that person who reviewed his last film can not only give him a bad review again, but say he's a bad sport at the same time. Um, For the record, his last film, Assassination Nation, was awful so she was right Uh, and i mean possibly i can't decide i I think maybe assassination nation was worse than this because this had um really good cinematography and i think we were discussing it i put it in this in my review it's basically um an overlong audition tape for um Mm -hmm. zendaya and uh washington who i I thought were good i think they're good actors Mm. it's just the script is just pointless and rubbish And my final point is, is this Hollywood nepotism at its best? Would Sam Levinson be able to make these films if his dad wasn't Barry Levinson? Uh, No, he wouldn't. Graham? Uh, I agree with everything. I just thought it was absolutely awful. Absolutely awful. Now, a lot has been made about the age difference between Zendaya and Washington and that he's a lot older than her. But the characters, well, the Washington character was eight years old and the Zendaya character was six years old. And I really don't want to go and spend two hours watching children having stupid, pointless <laughs> arguments. It was, I really had struggled to get through this. It was awful, really awful. I gave it two stars, one for Zendaya's performance and one for Washington's performance and nothing for anything else apart from the black and white photography which was gorgeous but everybody knows that I'm a bit of a sucker for that this is shameful absolutely shameful that this guy was allowed to put this out it's crap okay sorry do you want to give it another kick in when it's done nobody sets out to make a bad movie but this guy tried really really hard (laughs) (laughs) yeah sadly Darren's going to ride into this film's rescue now. Right. Okay. So the next time that the uh, NHS have a, um, have a have a COVID announcement, they should just play this film, and then on the bottom it should just say, "Is this the sort of film you want for the next five years? If not, wear your bloody masks and stay inside." <laughs> <laughs> and if this is the sort of crap that we're going to get, you know, because of it, you know, for God's sake, stay inside so we can get some good movies. I mean, as I'm sat through this, all I could think of is if he basically thanked her in his speech, we wouldn't have to sit through all of this. He just, it was just like, like everybody says, it was two self-absorbed people 
let's face it, we live very good, rich lives and we're just bickering and ranting and arguing. I, couldn't, I cared nothing for either of them. I mean, it reminded me of a times where I'd go to a friend's, to a couple's house and we both started arguing. I'd be trapped there. There's, there's absolutely no story arc in this at all. Everything that, you, that you're going to learn about these characters, you learn in the first 10 minutes. And after that, it's just more of the same, just back and forth and back and forth. And it was just awful. There's no, there's no revelations. There's no sort of, um, you know, any, anything that sort of realisations about the relationships, any, anything. It's just boring and tedious and awful. And the, the thing is that this, this might work better as a, as a play, but the, the thing is, you can't, it's hard to basically have this sort of performance where you've got someone making these grandiose, you know, over-exaggerated speeches on, on a film. It just doesn't come across well because people, you know, don't talk like that. It doesn't come across as uh, genuine or anything. I, I just I, I just thought this was absolutely awful. I remember looking at me watching one point, it was like 40 minutes in. I thought, oh God, I've still got more of this to go. It was just, it was just dreadful. Well, okay, thank you. I, I think the, the point that nobody's picking up on, this is actually a racist film. Because No, 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 no. Let me let me explain. Let me explain where I'm coming from. You've got a white writer, a director in Sam Levinson, who's putting in the worst aspects of himself out there, and he's making two black characters say it. And to me, I seriously think this is a racist film. And I'm stunned that these two actors, who are normally very good, agreed to do this film and this whole business about forgetting his wife's name when winning an award there's a far better story where editor paul hirsch forgot to mention his brother who had put up a lot of time effort and location when uh, hirsch was editing star wars and hirsch then forgot to mention him and that caused a family argument that went on for some time and if you're not mentioned for star wars that'll be far better than some pretentious crap that that guy would have made I do get concerned that his nepotism, his narcissism are put into a black character because, hey, you can't call him racist then. And and it is. Uh, so, and by the way, I would say on that, because Graham will probably think of cutting that out, I know about racism. I'm Welsh and there's nobody more oppressed than the Welsh. Anyway, the one thing, one of the, the lines in it I really did like was the whole business about William Wyler. And the fact that they kept comparing him to other black filmmakers. And that had a ring of truth about it. You know, and, and when she says, well, who's William Wyler? Uh, I, I thought, oh, that was really good. Oh, she said, I didn't realise that William Wyler was black. Uh, so <laughs> that sort of comparison, I, I thought, was was really clever. That was the funny line that was five minutes in. There was, you know, and I thought, oh, here we go. Best years of our lives, Ben, her. Yep. What's he going to say? And then it just fizzles out. And then you're back to narcissistic crybabies and squabbling for attention. And, oh, it's just. <sighs> yeah. Needy, and, needy, needy. Oh, for crying out loud. Grow up. And, yeah. and let's not get away from the other bad thing that you, you guys seem to have glossed over. That performance by John David Washington is awful. No, it's, I mean, it's no. yes, yes, it is. It's, it's completely over the top. Bad. I'm well, uh, well, he's picked two bad scripts in a row. So he did Bloody Tenant as well, oh, so which was great. Know, no, yeah. it wasn't fantastic. No, it wasn't. But he was so good in Black Klansman, and everything he's made since has been bad. I mean, is this nepotism at work here? He's only getting these parts because of his dad. 
No, Jeff, that's called getting it on merit. And yeah, I, I, I definitely disagree with that. I, I think I think Washington is really good in this, and and I think actually it's only because of Washington and Zendaya that we didn't just turn the bloody film off. She was all right, but ungrateful. But you know, she was yeah, she was okay. But um, and I think directing wise as well, if you look at it from the technical side, I accept all you say about the black and white and the photography. But I don't know what the hell he's doing with that camera. I mean, he's having the camera move around a lot. So I think he's trying to show the space between the characters. But this is a theatre piece. This is theatrical. You need to concentrate on that claustrophobia. You look at something like, and it's been mentioned earlier, um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? That sort of film needs that tightness in there. So you really get the power. By having the camera going around constantly saying, look how clever I am technically, it's just irritating. It did uh, at one point pan back and you show that there's just a square building in the middle of nowhere. That worked, but, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're supposed to be showing them on top of each other, literally, not literally, yes, but yeah. figuratively. Well, well, it is, because otherwise, uh, and I think Phil said it as well, the argument sort of fades out then starts again for no other reason than to start the argument again. Hmm. Whereas if you, you got them confined, you, you really should feel that power over stage piece, but it doesn't have it. I mean, I hope they separate. I hope they kill each other at the end so that there's no, there's definitely no possibility of a sequel. Um, <laughs> well, I don't think there'll be a sequel. No. And I've yet to say, even after Blythe Spirit, we're still not at the worst film of the month yet. Outrageous. <laughs> So, Outrageous, yeah. Thank you for your comments on the Netflix attempts at romance for Valentine's Month. Thank you, Netflix. Let's move on to our final piece, the comedy western Damsel. My name is Samuel Alabaster. What's that? It's a miniature horse. Hey, butterscotch. It's very rare, possibly even unique. Regular horses don't have names. They're just, uh, you know, regular. What's your fiance's name? Penelope. Wow, you're like a man. She's the most precious thing in the whole world. This is a big commitment. It's lifelong. Lifelong commitment. And there's no turning back now. Oh, no, it's never too late to turn back. You gave me mixed signals. I gave you no signals! If you're going to go on questioning the validity of my feelings, then you can go to hell. You're a regular black widow, ain't you? Things are going to be lousy. In new and fascinating ways. You always said the miniature horse was the cutest, most beautiful critters you've ever seen. I never said that. 1870. Samuel Alabaster, played by Robert Pattinson, arrives at a small western town with a miniature horse. He engages Parson Henry, played by the movie's co-director, David Zellner, to travel with him into the western wilderness. Sam wants to romantically propose to his sweetheart and have the parson marry them on the spot. As the journey continues, Parson Henry realises all is not quite as he has been led to believe. So, Jeff the Kid, oh goodness me, is this a Western you want to talk about in our Rustlers Roundup series? Not a chance, Neil. Just when you think the review month couldn't get any worse, along comes a comedy Western that has no laughs in it, and at its core, actually hates Westerns. Why does it hate Westerns? Because it's confusing. 
I mean, the prologue is so confusing. I actually thought the rest of the film was in the past. I didn't realize that who the preacher was. I thought it was the guy who handed over his clothes in his younger days. So badly directed. I got that, by the way, Jeff. So badly Did watched. Did you? Badly watched. Did everybody else get that? Was it, yeah, it was, was a preacher who take, takes on his clothes. He wasn't a proper preacher. Darren, did you get that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for that, Darren. That was, yeah, brilliant. It doesn't demythologize the West. Um, I love quirky Westerns. The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Jim Jarmus's Dead Man, and even, and I, I don't know who said it earlier, I think it was you, Phil, said, you know, elements of the Coen brothers. Well, this had none of that. Uh, you need strong characters. You need characters you like. Yeah. Mia Wasikowska, at times, she's an interesting character, particularly when one of the twists happens. But then she starts complaining about personal boundaries. I mean, come on. It's just nonsense, isn't it, really? And then an Indian character wanders in, and it's not like Chief Dan George in Outlaw Josie Wales who makes these sly, almost a side comments. He plays it like a modern character and i don't really how, quite know how dare he yeah and and so yeah but i think the point there neil is you've got this constant balance of they've got some of the idioms of the old west with some of the idioms of today and you've got characters who just wander in a complete from completely different periods but again ultimately even the indian is shown to be untrustworthy because he steals everything from them and the lead character you could just slap him he's so wet um, <laughs> and if there are themes of loneliness and madness, and it could have worked. You know, Adam Stone's cinematography is excellent, but without anything to hang it on. You know, when you come out of a film and somebody says to you, well, the cinematography's great, you know the rest of the film was shit. And hereby, I hand you a steaming pile of it. Over to you, Darren. I mean, if you put this story down on paper, I think you've got the potential for something that's sort of, you know, a really interesting premise, got a really a lot of potential there. But the pace of it just plods along so slowly and it's full of dialogue exchanges, which basically, again, had me nodding off. There was absolutely nothing, you know, sort of being said between them both. But the thing is, with a Western, you, you expect these long journeys over wild open spaces where you're spending a lot of time with the characters and everything. But you, that's it, the thing. You need to have characters who are going to be interesting, who have a bit of charisma, who... You, you know, you're sort of rooting for. And, and this just had none of that. When it got to, like, the action parts of this film, um, you know, it was actually okay. But it was just so tedious in, in between. And when you look at a lot actually does happen with the twists and turns and the, you know, the the, the rival gangs that they meet along the way and everything. But it, it was just so slow and you just didn't care about anybody. And the, the look of this film reminded me of the, um, of the other... Uh, film that was on Netflix a while ago, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And I think if it sort of basically put this story within that um, that anthology and condensed it down to its bare bones, I think it might have worked you know, a lot better. You might have had a, you know, a snappy little tale. But this film, I just had no real idea of, of what it was actually trying to say, of who, of who the, you know, the main character what was meant to be, or you were, you know, learning anything about? It was just like really, really, really tedious. No, you can have a slowly paced western, but as you say, you need strong characters, and this certainly didn't have it. Okay, then, Graham, you usually disagree with me. I also think they were going for the Coen Brothers feel and missed. Buster Scruggs just shows this film a clean set of heels. I, I 
like Darren, find it very tedious. There were moments and I thought, oh, here we go. Oh, no, 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 no. It's another 20 minutes of strange clipped dialogue and people appearing for no reason at all. And and as, as Darren said, on those long wides where there's just the two characters in a classic Western or even a modern Western, you know, like the Sisters Brothers, you get this huge amount of character detail so that you know what motivates them, what why they're doing things. This just didn't give me any of that. You know, what was Robert Patterson doing? He, he obsessed over this woman and he was going into the middle of nowhere to find her. Really, why? Why he wanted to marry her? Why did he bought her a ring? What What was the connection he saw? We didn't get any of that. I mean, the cinematography, again, yeah, okay, I agree, was fabulous. The, the action set pieces were very well done. I liked the bit where the guy was going for a pee and they accidentally shot him. I thought that was quite fun. Um, and then the way his wife had to come out and tuck his penis back into his trousers because he was hanging out. You know, I thought that was funny. But you want more of that, and it just never seemed to pick up the pace at all. It was just... I, I reckon he drunk half a lake before going out there, personally. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive stream, I think, is what you're trying to think. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, again, I disliked this entirely, and I gave it uh, half a star in my rating. Although Mia Wysokowski was very good. I thought her performance was good. But she was let down by terrible direction, bad pacing, and a shockingly bad script. She was better in Alice in Wonderland. Hmm. Neil? As Darren says, the setup's quite interesting. And as uh, Darren and everyone, and Graham has said, uh, it feels stretched out. I didn't think it was all that bad. I mean, I'm not sure I want to watch it again, but uh, Robin Patterson does comedy well and the twist. Well, I didn't see it coming. There is a lot to like. The setup takes way too long, though. Endless walking and talking about his true love and practicing how he'll propose to her. The humor's deadpan, which kind of works. As uh, Jeff said, Adam Stone's cinematography is excellent, gives us plenty of magnificent Utah landscapes, which is nice. The third act, which should have been the second half, introduces Mia Wasikowska in a great form. She's a scary lady. Sadly, the first half is essentially one joke, and the second half, torturing the parson, is a second joke. And that's it. I'm using in places, and it's, but it's far from perfect, and then maybe it could have been a lot better. I don't know. You were very kind there. That's all I'll say. Thank you. I'm waiting for Phil to lambast it now. Well, I'm, I'm going to put my Jeff Contrarian hat on and, <laughs> and say that I really loved the first half of this film. I thought the first half of this film was really good. I'll get to the second half in a minute. Um, the opening two scenes I thought were great. So you get a scene of Penelope and Samuel in happier times, and I thought it was really quirky and funny. Flashback, I think Jeff thought it was, or whatever he thought it was. Yeah, um, yeah it totally confused me. The brilliant cameo from the late Robert Forster about a parson who's disillusioned with the Old West and kind of hands over his gear to the main character of the film. Not sure how you didn't spot it, Jeff. Um, <laughs> because, no, because that guy looks a lot... The, the young, he looks he's been like there Robert a long Forster. time. He's been run down, just yeah. like the first one was. No, just... um, 
the first half, you get to spend a lot of time with Robert Pattinson Samuel and the co co writer, co director David Zellner, who plays the parson. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was quirky. It's wrapped in beautiful scenery. I really liked the the way that he was obsessed with this woman, and it was a happy story. And there was like, and then it, right in the middle of the film. It has an explosive reunion between Samuel and Penelope. And I thought it was great. And Graham alluded to the scene a a second ago. The problem is that really should have been the marker for like a final 10, 15 minutes wrap up. And the film would have been done and we would have had like an 80, 90 minute quirky Western. I think everyone would have had a much different perspective. But it's not. That's kind of like the exact halfway mark even though that that scene sums up the whole plot about Penelope's damsel status, you know, the film's called Damsel. She's not a damsel by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> they, they hammer it home perfectly in that scene. And then we get to spend, I think it's another hour or maybe a bit less, and they do it again three more times with three other different random characters who pop in. And it it results in the whole film dragging and it loses the majority of the goodwill that it generates in that first half. I still think it's worth a watch. It's not it's not anywhere near as bad as, or at least I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as a lot of you thought it was. But it does have a really poor second half that kind of ruins what went before. Well, we ride the Western Trail a lot and I wouldn't want it riding along with me. The other thing, Phil, that really annoyed me is that I found in the second half a lot of the jokes were so clearly telegraphed. Mm. And I keep going back to the Coen brothers and because they do this sort of stuff beautifully. But the bit where the brother falls on the, the dynamite plunger. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you could see that coming a mile off. It yeah. would have been much better if that had been over her shoulder. As you just see yeah. him walk off, and then suddenly he explodes into a, a dozen bits, and then the the wolves that have been following them start eating the guy who's just got blown up. That would have been a much f- far better joke. But he, you know, we spend five minutes going, "Oh, he's going to fall on the plunger." Oh, there he is. Oh, he's wandering towards it. There. Oh, there's the plunger. Oh, and he's fallen on it, and the whole funniness is just disappears i think the big Mm. problem there is they didn't need that brother to return they didn't need the indian bit they didn't need any of that they could cut cut all of that out and this film still would have made the point that it was trying to make and it still would have had the quirky funny stuff i don't know is it is it close to two hours it's probably close to two hours when it should have been like 80 minutes (laughs) yeah yeah no that's a good call phil well thank you for that fascinating discussion on damsel What a classic. Let's go over now to Darren's Dash. Okay, so first up this month is Greenland, which is an Amazon Prime movie and a disaster one this time. This is a um, a film where fragments of a comet are uh, are due to Earth, which is going to cause a widespread devastation across the entire globe. And Gerard Butler and his family are basically racing to find shelter in the uh, one of the last safe places in the world, which is a bunker in Greenland. I sat down on a Friday night for this, thinking I was going to get a, a silly disaster movie, something in the, in the same vein of San Andreas. Gerard Butler's in it, so I think it's going to be kind of a bit of like a rock-type vibe, fun movie. And 
I was absolutely amazed. What I ended up with was a really tense, nerve-jangling, serious drama that had myself tied in knots the, the entire way through. It's such a really surprisingly well-done film. Everything in it, it's, there's no romanticism or sentimentality like you will get in a lot of Hollywood end-of-world blockbusters. These were very realistic reactions to uh, the news that the world was facing impending doom. Starting with the neighbours finding out that the Gerard Butler's family were the only ones to basically get invited to this block. You had, uh, along the way, you had lots of obstacles and put up by, uh, by obviously, the, the natural panicking that you would get from the population and other people trying their best to survive themselves. It was a, you know, a really tense situation. This had me freaked out more than any thriller I have watched in ages. Marana Baccarin was from Deadpool, Gerard Butler's wife. There's a scene in it where she starts to say something to some of the authorities and you're kind of ahead of her when you know that she's making a really, really big mistake. She's revealing something that's going to put her and her family in danger. It was just stuff like that the whole way through it, the, the situations they would get on with. There was lots of um, uh, times when they had to make sort of very morality choices about sort of surviving. Also as well, the special effects, it didn't go into, you know, these big sort of epic um, shots of... Um, famous landmarks being destroyed or anything like that. When you got those films, it was very sort of down-to-earth and believable and made it all the more scary. I, I was really um, blown away how good this was and impressed. And I was, <laughs> I was, I have to say, I was worn out by the end of it. I did think the ending kind of took it down slightly, but overall, this totally overachieved for me. Oh, I could not agree more. I was blown away by this i mean what yeah <laughs> i mean i thought this was a fantastic absolutely fantastic film because i i wasn't i mean i i saw somebody put yeah. graham back on please <laughs> I, uh, I saw gerard butler in the title and i thought oh here we go this is going to be crap and within 10 minutes as Darren said, it's a visceral experience. You're on the edge of your seat most of the time. And it puts the humans at the centre of the story, not the CGI. And there's no nukes. We're not trying to nuke it. We've not got the army involved trying to send up nuke to blow this thing up. It's real people having real experiences and trying to get to this one place. So you're on their side the whole time. And there's another amazing thing. It's a disaster movie. And the mother actually has a role to play. And it's really, really good. Like, thank God somebody's given the woman something to do. And it's not the sort of... The uh, as opposed to ironing. I mean, it's a bit of a road trip, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time. It's about humanity all working together to try and survive. It's yeah, much it more deep impact than Armageddon, isn't it? And definitely, definitely. And I think that a lot of people will be really surprised because they'll see Jared Butler in there and they're expecting him to suddenly like turn into a superhuman. Yeah. But he's just he's just a, a dad and a and a estranged husband who's trying to save his family. And I think it you know, it just really works. No need to well, watch it now. No, no. Well Darren, you've um you picked the winner. <laughs> well, we'll definitely check that out. Wow. What else you got for us, Darren? 
Space Sweepers. This is a film that's um, just dropped on Netflix a few weeks ago. And this has been um, touted as the first Korean sci-fi blockbuster. And it's set in a future where the Earth has become um, pretty much uninhabitable. There's poverty all over the planet. The environment's going to hell. They're running out of resources. And large swathes of the population are managing to basically make a new life for themselves on space stations around the Earth. But it's not mainly the rich who are able to do this. And they're also sat in this new society run by super corporations. Now, this film follows a, a spaceship crew who are basically trying to scrape out a meagre living by um, salvaging the scrap that comes from space wrecks, which are now floating in uh, Earth's orbit. And while they're doing this, they chance upon a young girl in hiding in one of the spaceships, who we find is actually being hunted by various criminal gangs and military organisations, as there is a possibility that she may actually be the key to a new superweapon. This film is very much of a, a Guardians of the Galaxy Probably a little bit of Firefly element in there as well, about a sort of a space crew who are basically just living day to day, trying to make a living for themselves and surviving this sort of like, you know, really hostile, unfair environment. And this film steals from everything. It's, there's basically elements in there that are ripped from Star Wars, there's bits which are ripped from Aliens, there's a heavy plot point from Wally in there. The villains look exactly like the robots do in Chappie. One of the crew of pretty much a ripoff of K2SO from Rogue One. Copyright has just gone out completely out of the window on this film. The main villain is the head of a corporation, always doing a poor man's Russell Crowe. And one thing I've noticed in a lot of these sort of foreign films is when they bring in an, a, an English speaking actor, they're normally really, really bad because they're speaking to them a foreign language. We don't really care whether they can act or not. Yeah, aside from all this, I absolutely enjoy the hell out of this movie. It just felt like such a welcome relief to have something that was fun, had special effects, was brightly coloured, was exciting, had just some good world building. I really did enjoy it for for all its little misgivings, for all its rip-off things, and for a lot of sort of plot points that was just didn't quite add up at times. The thing that really did it for me that I really took to is I really liked this um, band of misfits that you were following. Like I say, it did have that sort of roguish Guardians of the Galaxy element. And they were sort of this like dysfunctional family. And how they took this young girl and when they first got her, they were basically planning to sell her to the ice bidder because she had to like, you know, it was a, you know, she was worth a lot of money. But they took her into their family and became like started looking out for her. As clunky as all this is, I really, really enjoyed it. I did like the special effects. And it was, like I say, it was just a a fun sci-fi movie. And after a year of having to watch pretty much like serious, low-key dramas, which have been some really good films, but it was nice just to get something with a little bit of spectacle in it. I'd I'd say what Darren was saying about borrowing some other films, it, it really does feel a bit like a Frankenstein's monster because it's kind of, part Japanese anime and you can add um, uh, Battle Angel Alita both versions as another film that it copies because the whole sort of space station uh, where the rich people live because the earth's uninhabitable is copied from there Um, and it's kind of part like epic video game part three men and a little lady and I have to say that I really loved the sci-fi elements of it I thought they were really great really fun and I really hated the Three men and a little lady, odd family situation that they had in it. But it is, it's a good laugh. 
Graham, you said. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And possibly for exactly the same reasons as Darren. It was just so much fun. I was laughing out loud and I was getting all the corny references to all of the other things it's derivative of. And I just found the crew charming and I found their sacrifice when reached the, the end of the film was just great. I thought it all worked very, very well. And it was just completely bonkers and i loved it you know you don't have to take it seriously it's just something you can sit down a couple of cans of beer and just have a good evening it was just great fun and a nice little twist at the end yeah and that captain by the way she had so much presence she had that she was like a, a little bit of a han solo thing about her with her swagger i i i really like that i liked them all but her, her especially she really stuck out for me excellent what else we got, Darren? Okay, so um, next one is a documentary this time, which uh, has been out a few years, but it's just dropped on um, Amazon Prime. And I've got to admit, I, this one totally passed me by. And it's a documentary about the making of Platoon. And it's pretty much all done mostly with um, with interviews with the cast. And they've got virtually everybody back for this. I think Charlie Sheen's actually produced it. Tom Derringer, William Defoe, Johnny Depp, Kevin Dillon. It's got pretty much most of the staff. The one person who it hasn't got, rather bizarrely, is Oliver Stone. However, that's fine because this film isn't really about the sort of the making of it as a whole it's a lot of it is about the actual cast and what they had to go through and um, the actual the, the bond that they started to get i mean the, the thing about what comes across in this film is that the cast were absolutely put through hell and um, before we were filming they were taking them overseas actually into a, a jungle and they were given military training the idea behind this was to get them used to being in that terrain, but also to um, create sort of a bond between them, like a real-life platoon would do, and uh, to make this more an authentic portrayal. And also, as well, you, you hear about the stuff that they pretty much try to dehumanise them somewhat to sort of make this uh, performance authentic. I actually thought this was really, really fascinating. It also made me realise this sort of strategy that Oliver Stone used to get the best performances. I think if this was to happen nowadays, there'd probably be outrage. Because of social media and everything, we're hearing more and more people, sort of directors being called out for um, how they, um, quote-unquote, abuse their cast and things. And and like I say, he pretty much would play loads and loads of tricks on, on them. There were, there were times when he'd drive them while by basically making him do scenes over and over again. And then it turned out he was never filming the scene. He was just trying to degrade their state of mind so he could get like some emotional performances from them. I think actors, particularly Hollywood ones, get a lot of bad press because, let's face it, they make loads and loads of money. They've got very sort of privileged lifestyles. But when you see something like this and what they went through, they do sort of, you know, at times, really put themselves out there and put themselves through it for our entertainment. And But yeah, I, I thought this was absolutely fascinating, particularly if you are basically a, a fan of Platoon. Great on my list. Yeah, same same for me. I really want to see this. A uh, couple of questions. Are those interviews with the stars vintage or modern day? No, mod- modern day. They, they were all basically brought in specially to interview them for this. It's all brand new stuff. Oliver Stone 
was he not invited or couldn't make it or does it I, not I don't make that know. clear? To be honest, I've not really looked into the, the making of it. I mean, I would imagine they'd um, maybe have invited him. But like, like I say, he's not really what this is about. It's not It's not his vision. It's about the effect that it had on them as, as actors. So in a way, he's kind of, he's not really missed from, from this. And to be honest, I think him not being involved gives the cast a freedom to basically stick the boot in a bit about some of the stuff that he would do. But to, to be honest, it was only until after I'd watched it that I actually realised he wasn't in. I just sort of got so engaged listening to their stories. Kevin Dillon has a lot of interesting stuff as well because his character, if you remember, was a really horrible character he, he's involved in a gang rape and he talks about how that actually affected him and how his family when they saw him doing these things how it affected them so that was really fascinating as graham said that's high on my list definitely something i want to see i will be checking that as soon as possible i think that not having stone in it is interesting i mean the whole point of platoon is it's a conflict within a conflict so you've got the conflict between the two sergeants the people are stuck in the middle of that and they're inside the uh, the obvious conflict of the war. And now you find out that the director was actually putting them through a third conflict. Now that, to me, is fascinating. I cannot wait, cannot wait to watch this. Mm. I, I might watch that this afternoon. Well, thank you for this month's column and, uh, again, for everything you promote through Darren's Dash. Not only the ones that people may otherwise miss, but also, you know, for watching the films that we don't have to. And I appreciate <laughs> that, Darren. Thank you for that, Darren. Okay, out of all the films we've reviewed, which film would you rate above all others this month? For me, Mank. Graham. Mank. Uh, Mank for me. And Mank for me as well. Well, that's overwhelming there. That was easy. (laughs) Okay, as for next month, we talk to writer-director Mark Bryan about his career and the film he made during lockdown. Elijah returns to talk Bond, and we will also talk more about our plans for the new Bond casting. I'm sure I'll get the most of votes in the upcoming poll, as the best Bond was played by an Irishman. Even I don't agree with that. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap, and another At The Flicks is in the can. So, Neil, in preparation for the Bond poll, which James Bond girl did you like the most? Pussy Galore or Chew Me? I always like Christmas Jones, although she only comes once a year. That's not right. <laughs> I can't say that. That's what he says in the film. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> Looks like I will be the one having to keep the British end up. Oh, oh Jesus. That's worse. And to everyone else. Thanks for listening and goodbye. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.